Hello, and welcome back to Four Scholars, One Zoom, the podcast where humanities graduate students come together to discuss emerging trends, issues, and discourses within our respective fields. I'm Tess, your host and a first-year art history PhD student. Because art history is a highly interdisciplinary field, I like to get together with my fellow humanities to make sure that I always have the freshest tea. Today's discussion deals with the question, who gets to decide? Who decides what the differences between a historical document and a personal document? Who decides what scholarly communication is? And who decides what it means to be a victim? Our conversations today will touch on many different issues surrounding privacy, ideology, and language. Nick, you have the floor. Thanks, Tess. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Nick Michiganis. I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate at the University of Maryland in College Park, and I focus mainly on German history. And so we have this really interesting debate within the historical field in general, but also within German history. And we have this question of privacy and the narratives told and who has the right to tell these stories, in particular when we discuss the Holocaust and the victims Mm -hmm. who were murdered at the hands of the National Socialists. Now, on this question of privacy, one can look to the case of the Max Planck Institute in Munich and its discussion of the impact of the Nazis' T4 program. So just a little bit of context. During the Second World War and the lead up to it, the Third Reich murdered over 300,000 people, including children who they deemed mentally disabled or mentally ill. They were unworthy of life according to the Nazi racial theory. And these murders were known as the T4 program. Now, upon killing these individuals, murdering them, scientists would then analyze and preserve the brains of the victims. The problem, however, is that these studies didn't end in 1945 with the end of the Second World War and the Nazi regime. In fact, the Max Planck Institute continued to allow studies on the preserved brains up into the 1970s. In 2015, employees of the Max Planck Institute began an effort to try and catalog the brain slides of the victims and identify who these victims were. But as you can imagine, this is a monumental task when you have to locate and identify over 300,000 people. Furthermore, this raises a lot of questions. How do we discuss this historical episode and how do we discuss and portray the victims? So for example, some of the family members had been notified But they didn't want the legacy of the children, the other victims, to simply be one associated with murder or tools for scientific Mm -hmm. discovery. These were human Mm -hmm. beings, after all. They had hopes. They had dreams. They're more than just victims of the Nazis. Curious about our other panelists here. What similarities do do you see in your respective fields? And are there issues regarding privacy and recounting stories? That is interesting. I'm... I'm just sitting here with my mouth open <laughs> because it just mm-hmm. nothing amazes me anymore mm-hmm. when it comes to atrocities and just wrongdoing for to people who are just trying to live right and so I'm just sitting here like mm-hmm. wow that's that's insanely intense <laughs> but what my first thought was history is told by the winners that's the first thought that came to mind right but we know that there are two sides three sides four sides to history because everybody has their own interpretation of what happened but i think the plight of history's past is that it's only been told by one group of people or one set of people and the other renditions what do we call it the other 
I think that that's, um, that's really great, Rara, like the whole mm -hmm. piece of the puzzle thing. I think the problem with writing history um, is that it is essentially narrative, right? This is a thing that we talk about a lot um, in feminist scholarship is that when you turn focus, right, the story changes. So you're using the same documents, right? Mm -hmm. But you turn your focus and the narrative changes. But the question here, and I want to kind of bring it back to um, that mm -hmm. is, who gets to tell these stories? I just want to tap into that that topic yeah. um, mm -hmm. because there's a very interesting thing here, which is something we don't problematize enough, maybe, uh, in terms of how narratives are built and how they are yeah. uh, disseminated, which is the role of museums. We have been right. discussing more and more how museums work. Uh, there's been a, a, mm -hmm. a strong claim for decolonizing museum practices, mm -hmm. but they also tell a story that's not neutral because they cannot be neutral. Mm -hmm. So uh, the discussion of mm -hmm. musealization, which is the technical word, a horrible word, uh, too long, uh, but the discussion over how mm -hmm. you transform something, a set of events, a set of uh, discourses of, uh, you know, experiences, uh, into an exhibition, into a museum collection, into an entire museum is not discussed. And one of the things mm -hmm. that that museum mm -hmm. curators grapple with, especially when per, when um, displaying religious objects or objects associated with trauma, is how do you provide a contextual experience? Because the idea of taking an object, mm -hmm. any object, and just putting it on a white wall um, is an inherently white Western and highly uh, mm. 20th century perception mm. of what art is, right? Um, and it really, you know, th there's a reason yeah. why many of us call the label next to an object a tombstone, because once you put it in a museum, it's dead. It's a morgue. Um, <laughs> and, and, and in an effort to actually use museums as a more educational tool, um, and, and, and of course, decolonizing the museum, um, I, I agree that decolonization should not be a metaphor, so I'm hesitant to even talk about decolonizing a museum because a museum, again, is an inherently Western concept for how you should appreciate things. That's sterile. Yeah. I could rant and rave about this all day, but I will move on. Nick, one of the things that um, we've talked about in um, some of my museum studies conversations is that mm. contextualization um, as a teaching tool versus almost getting into this icky territory of theme parking things. Um, and, and one of the things that that makes people, that mm -hmm. really divides people from, from all different backgrounds, walks of faith, perspectives, is are Holocaust museums. Yeah, I actually talk a little bit just about how this memory and this conversation developed in German history, because it's interesting. They, they made, there was a period right after the Second World War where it was very much, let's sweep it under the rug, we don't want to talk about these things, but there's this really, well, okay. I hesitate to say beautiful word in German, but it's the word is Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which literally means coming to terms with the past mm -hmm. it means grappling mm -hmm. with it. And it is this process that has really been the cornerstone of German culture after the sixties, which was no, there is a, this, this act was unique in history and therefore there needs to be a unique process of remembrance that comes along with this. Now it mm -hmm. does become messy, you know, does this, is this something that should be remembered every time politics regarding Israel come up? And mm -hmm. these are things that Germany is still wrestling with today, but what it is 
also is this conscious effort in German culture to say, no, we need to acknowledge the truth behind certain things are just not on the table for discussion. And that, that leads to things like kind of Holocaust denial or stuff like that is completely off the table. And so I, while I can't speak specifically to the museum studies, I can speak to the uniqueness of this particular moment, uh, mainly because this is something that in the U.S. we could potentially learn a lesson about in terms of honest conversations about the past and unique efforts to try and go out of our way to remember it. Mm. Um, because Germany made that decision and it's, I would argue, has positively impacted both their culture, but also democratic institutions in general. It's so interesting. It's so interesting because like listening to you, I'm thinking about America's atrocities, right? Mm -hmm. When we think about enslaved people and in particular states, I won't name mm -hmm. how it's being presented as something more pretty than what it was, right? And I think that's something with America. They they, they want to make things better. They want to make things look better. It's like there's nothing good, nothing pleasant about anything that's happened to any group of people that have been dehumanized and pulverized and killed and whatever, right? There's nothing good about that. And I think that we have to accept that as it is and you know, rip that bandage off and just let it live as it is, right? The context, this is where we were. Are we removed from that? Yes, we are, right? And there are ways that we can talk about these things that shouldn't need to be more palatable, sure, but we can't rewrite history, right? Like they're doing, we can't do that because what they're doing is not accurate and it's not fair to those people and their ancestors. I mean, I, my grandmother, I have friends whose grandparents or great grandparents are still who are still living that experienced segregation, right? That experienced, um, you know, integration. They're still living, right? They've lived this. This is their experience. And who are you to rewrite that and make it more pleasant than what it was? It's not that, you know, we have to rest in the atrocities, especially if we're not going to recognize them and atone for them and do the necessary work, whatever reparations may look like, right? Because we know that's not just financial. It's a lot of things, right? If we're not going to do that work, then we can't rewrite what's been done. What's more interesting about this, like memory work is that it's always about context, right? So again, we're talking about a deliberate decision to remember, to come to terms with, uh, because we need these to move forward. Um, coming out of the dictatorship in Brazil in the 80s, uh, the, the movements of those who were victims, victimized mm -hmm. by the, the, the dictatorship, mm -hmm. would claim a need for, okay, truth, memory, they would claim the need to truth, memory, and justice uh, to move forward. That's what we would need to build our democracy or rebuild it. Um, and I'm not like wanting to compare things or anything, but mm -hmm. we're talking about episodes that mm -hmm. were traumatic to a particular country or mm -hmm. even beyond that, uh, and episodes that need to be discussed mm -hmm. moving forward. The same thing goes for uh, the the for January 6th in the in the U.S. or in Brazil, January 8th, mm -hmm. 2023. We just had that happening uh, just this week on Monday. Mm -hmm. We had the first year. Um, anniversary and we had to discuss this as a democracy how we're going to move forward once we had mm. an attempted coup mm. uh, just a year ago this is a discussion we need to have to build a better society to build the society we actually want 
this discussion actually reminds me of something I wanted to bring up uh, from my field work uh, in Brazil, which is the discussion over who can be considered a victim in particular situations. So if you talk to someone who recently lost a relative for health reasons in Brazil, or if you read a news piece about someone famous who died, you're probably going to notice that we phrase things in a particular way. We may say that that person was a victim of a disease. We may say a victim of cancer, of a heart attack, of a stroke, you name it. Uh, it just rolls out of the tongue for us. But uh, somehow in my recent experience as a Brazilian living in the US, that's an expression that really raises questions. It strikes me every time I try to explain my research project in a room full of English speakers, because I work with activists who lost their loved ones during the pandemic and live with the constant presence of grief and longing. Um, after this experience, this very tragic experience, they created associations to fight for the rights of those people, the people they lost, or for their own rights as people who are grieving now. Um, and they started calling themselves victims of COVID or COVID victims. Now, one way of explaining this expression or this particular uh, phrasing they're using is going back to the beginning, as I just mentioned, and noticing that they died of COVID so people in Brazil wouldn't think twice before calling them victims of COVID. It would be natural to us in a way. In comparison, in the US, you may say that someone was a victim of a homicide, not a disease. This is where the double meaning of the expression in Portuguese becomes richer. Victims of COVID were at the same time killed by a disease and by the government. Those who died of COVID, especially during the most acute period of the pandemic, were victims of state violence through the official denial of COVID. Uh, COVID victims is a shortcut they use, and at the same time, it's a difference that language and translation created. In Brazil, the pandemic was openly treated with negligence by former President Bolsonaro, and many news outlets may call what he did or what other governments elsewhere did a mishandling of the pandemic. But what we're talking about is much more serious than that. Um, he neglected to purchase supplies and vaccines. He pushed ineffective medicines such as chloroquine and ivermectin in the public health system. And he widely misinformed the population in relation to masks and to other preventive measures. As a result, we had until 2023, actually until now, we have a total of uh, 700,000 deaths to COVID. And because of that, claiming victimhood is a statement. It is an accusation directed at the state and those at the forefront of decision-making during the pandemic. It carries a very clear assessment of accountability, which is connected to how Brazilians relate to the state when it comes to healthcare. That's their struggle right now. And being very... Uh, adamant in terms of their recognition as victims is a very important part of this process. Wow. Thanks, Vinny. Um, I have a lot to think about <laughs> now. Um, one of the things that's kind of immediately coming to the fore is the notion of um, words and their implications in the American, um, the American collective consciousness. For example, um, you know, Americans really pride themselves on um, this sort of bootstrap narrative that American refusal to use the word victim, it may seem like a point of self-pride, but by refusing to use the term victim, who is that really serving often? On that note, Vinny, 
Can you talk a little bit more about the idea of victimhood in Brazil? And most importantly for today, who gets to decide who a victim is? Yes, thank you. And that's that's a really good question, uh, especially because at the end of the day, we're talking about a word that depends on context. Again, it depends on cultural context, linguistic context, and how people will mobilize the word with different meanings and intentions, right? So what I'm talking about is a movement that inscribes into itself in a history of other movements that have used the term to mean something specific, which is we have been violated by the Brazilian state in different ways. That has happened to victims of the dictatorship and has happened to victims of police violence, even in cases in which the state was negligent because uh, their use of victimhood, uh, their claim of being victims is something that creates an obligation to the state, right? So someone needs to repair the violence I suffered. Someone needs to do something after this. Um, so it is a very powerful uh, expression. It's a very uh, politically charged, but also legally charged uh, word that these movements are using. This is a political and legal strategy. That's not something they haven't thought about. At the same time, it's very organic because of the way we use these expressions in Portuguese. I think something that you said was the labeling of victim, like it's powerful. And I ain't never heard that. <laughs> I've never heard that being a victim is powerful, right? Using that term when it comes to naming a group or naming a, a movement is powerful. In America, nobody wants to be a victim. Nobody wants to be a victim of gun violence. Nobody wants to be a victim of any type of violence, right? State, social, nothing. Because it's it's like weakness, right? It's like a sign of weakness if you're a victim of something. And so just to hear you say that there's power in being a victim and it's it's like leverage almost. It's, you know, once you say, I'm, you know, I'm a victim of COVID and, you know, you're holding the state accountable for what they did or didn't do, that level of accountability, I don't know if that exists here, here being in the United States, right? I think it really is every man for themselves. And it's just really, one, refreshing to hear you say that, but also it reminds you of where you are. I could never be a powerful victim, ever. Like as a woman, as a Black woman, I could never be a powerful victim because that doesn't even make sense. I think that's one of the reasons why the word victim is so important because of its legal consequences, you know, and political, of course, as well, because they never go alone. Um, so because you need the state to acknowledge or to be forced uh, to pay reparations to victims, you want to be considered a victim, not because it's positive to be a victim, but because there is some power in this configuration in framing or inscribing yourself in this category. Um, so I think that's where the idea that victimhood can be powerful has a particular meaning in this particular context. One thing I don't want to do here is to romanticize the word victim. It's not just to say it's only positive, even in Brazil. It's not. It's definitely not positive, but there is some power there is some possibility that it creates 
uh, once you mobilize it in that particular context. So if you're claiming reparations, then you have to frame yourself as a victim for legal and political reasons. Well, I think that comes into also um, like the agency provided to you by the power structures of your system, right? So if in Brazil, being a victim comes with a sense of accountability, then there is power in that, right? Whereas, um, and I think this goes back to the main theme of our episode, which is who gets to decide. So one of the things that we talked about um, with both Nick and Vinny is the idea of reparations. And I'm really struck by the one-way agency of a reparation, right? Um, so who gets to decide who is a victim? Well, I would say the person who's who's suffered the trauma gets to decide if they're a victim or not and if they claim that identity for themselves. However, in order to hold someone or something or an entity accountable in order to receive reparations for what has been done to you, the state has to agree, you know, that you are a victim. So not only who gets to decide who is a victim, but who gets to decide who is entitled to reparations. It's not the person receiving the reparations. It's the person paying the reparations. A point I wanted to ask regarding kind of your experience in, in Brazilvania is, does it require the state's approval or acknowledgement of, you know, an atrocity or a shortcoming in order for it to be accepted by the public? In in other words, kind of, is it the top down, like state says it, this is what it's validated in people's eyes, or is it the other way around where it's the pressures from people saying this was a shortcoming, this was something that was done to us or wasn't fair that legitimizes it in the public's eye? I would say normally it starts with mobilization, especially when we're talking about uh, historically present, sometimes a bit diffuse uh, process, but there are always situations in which it comes top down. You have things coming from the top, but also things coming from movements who will mobilize the very foundational fact that they suffered a violation. So when we talk about voices and stories and authority and how important language is, there's actually this picture going around on the socials of a teacher who has created this list of words and phrases that aren't allowed in their classroom. And if you're caught using these words or phrases, you have to write a short essay explaining why you chose to use these words in an academic setting to express yourself. And they're going to say that there are many ways to articulate what you need to say without using slang. And that if you use slang in an academic setting, it can diminish your capability to become a successful writer. The gibberish, they actually use the word gibberish in this little write-up. They say <laughs> the gibberish some of you choose to use is improper English and sometimes inappropriate in academic settings, which I can I can understand that it could be inappropriate, but I, this whole thing is just really throwing me off. So anyway, some of the words on that list include bruh, standing on business, you ate that up, cap, bet, on my mama, <laughs> Uh, just vibe, nah. So that's like really saying like now, but really mm -hmm. Southern people kind of say it that way. Mm -hmm. And it's giving. And it's a lot, that's, it's a whole list of terms and phrases on there, but those are just the more popular ones. And a lot of these terms are coming from popular songs and things from the clock app. But anyway, mm -hmm. the question posed to the audience on the socials is whether this list is anti-Black. 
and Jamel Hill and some others have weighed in, both understanding the intent, but also calling out the teacher for this list and challenging their role as an educator to meet students where they are and to work with them to be able to operate in a different environment, like amongst different people, right? Chameleon, right? Mm -hmm. But you can do that without vilifying someone's language choices. Mm -hmm. Like there has been my problem with this is that there has been too much going on and too much work done by W.B. DeVos and Carter G. Woodson, Hallie Quinn Brown, Zora Neale Hurston, Geneva Smitherman. All these people have done too much work on acknowledging mm -hmm. and studying and championing um, specifically black English for this mm -hmm. to be OK. Mm -hmm. Students' right to their own language was a proclamation created in, um, in 1972. I think that's when it was first written. Mm -hmm. And it basically stated that students have a right to their own dialects and language patterns, mm -hmm. right? That standard English isn't a thing. And most importantly, that teachers must have the experience and training that will enable them mm -hmm. to respect diversity and uphold the rights of students to their own language. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the explanation that this teacher gives about why these words or phrases aren't allowed is offensive. And it really seeks to police language instead of using it as an exploratory measure of learning because language is fluid. Like it's mm -hmm. always changing. And students have, the fact that students have to do extra work to write out why they want to speak this way it's, in, it's just, it doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about story, when you talk about voices, who gets to decide, I ask who gets to decide how I speak besides me, right? Mm -hmm. Who who has mm -hmm. the authority to tell me that I'm not speaking properly? The language I use and anyone uses is a story that tells you more about who I am, right? Where mm -hmm. I come from, which part of the world I'm from, my worldview and all that should be engaging and informative and worthy of research, not labeled gibberish and improper mm -hmm. and compared to standard English, because what even is that? My language, what I speak, how I'm speaking to you right now is my story. My story is my voice and my voice is my authority, right? That That is what empowers me. This statement, in my opinion, that they're making is very dismissive of mm -hmm. who their students are as people and it forces them to assimilate rather than mm -hmm. to explore themselves and use their own knowledge to understand the world. Mm -hmm. Understanding that there are inter intersecting components of being human and interacting through speech and visuals is important. And I think that this educator, sadly, is missing a real opportunity to, to connect to their students. And mm -hmm. I really would not be surprised if these students are completely turned off by them and mm -hmm. make this a not nice year because you came out the gate judging <laughs> you mm -hmm. came out the gate assuming that the way that they speak the quality of their speech is not up to par and it's just it's unacceptable i'd be curious about the details of the story you know because it's a question of is there maliciousness attached to it or not because theoretically it's almost like trying to create a level playing field that everyone understands each other but ironically it's doing the opposite it's being restrictive mm -hmm. and it's being dismissive and mm -hmm. so doing that, I feel like you literally closed yourself off to any possibility to learn and mm -hmm. to understand like your students. And if anything, what would I have liked to see? What could have been done differently? I think that you allow them to use the speech they choose. But like I said before, show them the equivalent, mm -hmm. help them to critically think about where this is appropriate, but the classroom should be the safe space to, to 
grapple with that. My mom once told me, it's not unladylike to swear and we're not constraining ourselves to the bounds of of what's ladylike or not. But she looked at me and she said, Tessa, (laughs) if you drop an F-bomb all the time, it won't mean anything when you do. (laughs) Um, And I feel as though when you're talking about equivalence and, and different ways, we shouldn't be taking the language out of students' mouths. We should be enhancing it so that right. when you know you choose to use slang or a, a colloquialism or whatever it may be it is the best way to express that specific idea and not just yeah. a default in a lecture i once i put um a slide up and i i looked my students dead in the face and i said this is the fuckboy haircut of the 15th century <laughs> you know and if i'd said that all the time right it would carry but it was there was just no better way to express the fashions of the other than, and I feel strongly that all language has its place in that way. Sometimes it's giving is the only way to express how how you feel about something. And other times there are other ways. And I don't think that we should be closing students off. I think that we should be opening up at best, I guess, using more academic language, whatever that means, should be a tool to express multiple ideas in many ways, not a limiting Mm -hmm. thing. I also feel very strongly as a medievalist, um, we're talking a lot in this episode about who gets to decide what standard English is or academic English is or scholarly language. Mm -hmm. And I laugh because, you know, reading even back to the 15th century, like the the writings of Julian of Norwich or something, I can barely decipher it. (laughs) English is constantly evolving. It doesn't look the same way that it did. Expressions change. So I view oftentimes what people say, the kids these days are saying, it's just a natural progression. English is not a static thing and no language is a static thing. We don't speak British English here in the States. Even American academics do not speak British English. I just find that really interesting that an educator would wish to limit instead of expand. I don't think that that's the point of expanding a vocabulary or learning more words. I think that the point isn't to narrow it down, but to, to expand it. So hearing this, Rara, I just keep going back to the idea of uh, linguistic prejudice. Honestly, Mm -hmm. every attempt at domesticating the language uh, of students, even young students, that's even worse, I think, uh, Mm -hmm. is a form of violence, right? It's a form of violence to the way they live in the world, the, the people they have connections with, they have relationships with, and it creates a sterile environment that doesn't reflect the real world. So it doesn't, as you said, the teacher is not doing their job, which is to teach them that it's all about context. Again, (laughs) language has different registers and you're going to flow in between from one register to another, depending on the context, depending on who you're talking to, where you're talking, like those kinds of things that could be taught, but not in a violent way. There are certain expectations that you will be talking in a certain way. But that's not set in stone. That's not something you're supposed to do necessarily. And students should have the space to actually learn that, right? They are learning. Right. They are in the process of learning. Mm-hmm. If you start this that soon, then can you think of the consequences? And and that's uh, just to me, it reads like we don't have the details, but to me, it reads as pedagogically conservative mindset. Yeah. It mm-hmm. doesn't really go with and 
a world that's ever-changing. Also, as someone constantly lost in translation, having English <laughs> as a second language, it's important for people to be flexible and understand that yeah. sometimes a slang mm -hmm. is the only thing you're going to have at that yeah. moment. Yeah. Or even like, a word that doesn't isn't as common but sometimes it translates in your mind to something that makes sense and and hits where you want it so that kind of flexibility that is something that should be taught not the rigidity of english is just one thing one standardized yeah. element all right well thank you rara and thank you also nick and vinnie as always happens when i speak with very smart people i think more questions were raised than answered but that is the way that knowledge making works, really, is asking questions. Uh, I know that I have a lot to think about, and I think our audience does too. Thank you so much. Period. <laughs> and so you shouldn't be saying period, but <laughs> I do what I want. <laughs>